Hello, and thanks for joining us for this edition of Strap4 Talks, the monthly podcast where we take a broad view of some ongoing issues in the news and geopolitics. I'm Marla Moore. And I'm Ben Sheen. And we're your hosts for this podcast. Our show today is divided into two segments. First, we'll be talking with Stratfor's Vice President of Intelligence, Fred Burton, about some of the finer points of building a reliable intelligence network in combat environments, and the difficulties of protecting diplomats in places like Benghazi. Then we'll have a special guest, Tolga Ozertschu, from the University of Texas at Austin, joining us for a segment on international sport organizations and how they intersect with geopolitics. So sit back and enjoy the show. And if you'd like to subscribe to our free podcast feed, you can find us by searching for Stratfor in the iTunes store. You can also follow us on Facebook or connect with us on Twitter, where we're at Stratfor. So to begin, Hillary Clinton has been in the news over the past few weeks, as you might expect. But the issues she's dealing with are not those she was probably hoping to as a freshly announced presidential candidate. In fact, she's been at the intersection of two crises. The questions that continue to dog her about the September 11th attacks in Benghazi in 2012, when she was actually Secretary of State, and also the use of her private email account to discuss official business. The new story has been that Sidney Blumenthal, a former journalist who's been close to the Clinton family for several decades now, was apparently fielding intelligence from his own sources in Libya in the lead-up to the attacks that killed U.S. Ambassador Chris Stevens and three others. As many of you know, Stratfor typically doesn't delve into the play-by-play on domestic U.S. politics. We prefer to focus on the geopolitical system, and as part of that, the role the U.S. plays in the world, regardless of which party is in power. But this particular story raises important questions about the workings of the intelligence community inside Washington and the difficulties of building reliable intelligence sources in chaotic environments. And for that, we'll turn to Fred Burton. He's a former State Department employee himself, a veteran of the Diplomatic Security Service, and he's written a book on the Benghazi attack from the perspective of the DSS agents who were there. Thanks, Fred. Thanks for having me. Now, Fred, when we look at Blumenthal, what we see here is what some people call uh, an example of driving without a license. How do actually elected and appointed officials such as Hillary Clinton, how do they differentiate between what are official and what are unofficial sources? It's a good point, Ben. It's been my experience that uh, every cabinet-level official usually comes into their position and brings a the source network of their own, and these could be uh, folks that have helped them along in their career or uh, they've worked with in the past in various capacities. And I think it's a little bit of human nature. You, you bring those that uh, you trust to help you, and it's not unusual for these individuals to reach back out to these senior officials and provide them with a range of different information points or intelligence from a host of different issues. So uh, I don't really see this as something that's been that unusual. I have no doubt that Secretary of State Clinton at the time was getting daily intelligence feeds from my old organization, the DSS, as well as from the Intelligence and Research Department of, of the State Department called INR. And then she clearly would have full access to all the intelligence being shared by the CIA and NSA as well. I think like in so many other people inside the Beltway that have these kinds of think tanks and resources and and business contacts all over the world, it's not unusual for people like this to travel in those circles and have a network of, of individuals, whether they be former diplomats or business leaders in different countries to reach out and I mean, inside the Beltway, this is what people do. There's a whole lobby on K Street that exists to provide 
information and back-channel intelligence reports on a range of diff different issues. And in fairness to former Secretary Clinton, I think that there is that mindset at times that uh, they want to keep the intelligence community honest, and they're going to naturally reach out to people they trust. It's human nature. We do that. Uh, everybody does that. And so uh, it's not surprising to me that this has uh, happened and that this has been reported. I think what mainstream media is missing is that uh, this would not be the only source of information that uh, the former Secretary of State would have received. This is just another channel that she would have received. And all indications are that, you know, there were reports she received that she was skeptical of and others that she felt um, needed to be distributed um, widely. But I think it underscores a point about the difference between journalism and intelligence work and that journalism, you develop sources. I'm, Mr. Blumenthal obviously would know that, very experienced working with sources and nothing wrong with that. But in intelligence work, don't you really go a few steps beyond that in terms of grading the reliability of the sources and the motivations that they have for what they're reporting? Without a doubt, there's an established process in any intelligence service to grade those reporting reports as they come in from the field. Heck, we have that same system in place here at Stratfor. So uh, the system, whether it be MI6 or the CIA, has a, a very robust system to be able to, to grade and assess that kind of information. But uh, I think the important takeaway here as you look at this, and I think a lot of folks don't realize this, if the CIA talks to a foreign business person in Libya, for example, that report's going to be classified secret at minimum. It's going to be assessed and perhaps pushed out to the intelligence community. If that businessman talks to that same person in Libya or that journalist, it's not classified. Does that degrade the quality of that content? Not necessarily that business person might be reporting very accurately on what's taking place in that country. It all depends on who talks to them and how it's being reported. And uh, I think there lies the rub. That's where the intelligence community has to assess all source information and see where this may fit. And uh, again, uh, that reporting very well may have filled some intelligence gaps. It may have helped the CIA assess a situation on the ground. Then again, it may have been discounted by the uh, IC or the intelligence community as something that's of no value at all. And it's interesting looking at it from the source perspective because you might have sources that are more willing to speak to perhaps a journalist and they are somebody from somebody from a military intelligence organization. There could be a degree of risk involved. And that's always something to consider. I was talking to a journalist today who had interviewed a terrorist in Lebanon. Now, the purposes of that interview was totally different. It wasn't for a capture, a rendition, uh, or to set that person up in some sort of ruse operation. The journalist was doing her job by interviewing this person. And I think there lies the difference. Uh, the CIA would not be interviewing that terrorist for the purposes of writing a report about it, per se. They would be looking at it in a different context. And in many ways, business people and journalists and analysts in the field can get to a lot of people without the bureaucracy that uh, encumbers many intelligence services.
It's an interesting perspective because as a former journalist, um, what I often found was that people were most comfortable talking to me when they forgot that I was a reporter. And you can only imagine what the reaction would be if you show up and say, hi, I'm from the CIA. Mm -hmm. uh, would you, I'd love to, for you to help me. You know, wh where's that going to go? Absolutely. So what exactly happens when, when somebody decides that they're going to go out and develop source networks for whatever reason and that hasn't been authorized by the CIA or by anyone else in government. What is the process for the way that that information flows and how does it get vetted? Typically what will happen, Marla, is uh, the person that collects that kind of information, whether it be a private company or an individual or a business person, they will bring that forward to their contacts in the government regardless of where that government capital may be, whether they're reporting it back to Paris or London or to Washington, D.C. or to Langley and say, hey, I talked to this Libyan businessman, for example, and they're talking about uh, ports or oil development or militia groups. Are you interested in that? What intelligence service is going to turn that down? Nobody is going to turn down that volunteer that brings that kind of information forward. It would be no different than a walk-in to a foreign diplomatic mission that wants to provide information. Everybody's going to take that and try to see how good that information is, evaluates it, writes it up, and reports it back to the home office so you could see how does this fit in the big picture. And there's always, of course, that part of intelligence, which is what do you do with the information? How do you verify it? How do you vet it? How do you interpret it? And then the, the huge part is getting it to the end user. It has to be accurate. It has to be timely. And you can have the best piece of intelligence in the world, but unless it gets to the person who can actually do something with it, then it can be largely pointless or ineffectual. Spot on. Uh, you have to be able to not only collect it, but you have to have the means to try to assess that. And you can look at some of the emails that have been disclosed by the State Department and see that uh, the individual that was reporting this appeared to have pretty good channels and, and access to a, a range of different officials. And in fairness to Foggy Bottom, uh, they did uh, the right thing by pushing it out. And I have no doubt that we don't see that in the email exchanges here, that copies were forwarded to the National Security Council, the FBI, the CIA, the DIA, the Pentagon for further assessment and vetting. So coming to the issue of the September 11th attacks in Benghazi, um, it would seem that, you know, based on the emails that have been released, that uh, Mr. Blumenthal um, did what he as a journalist would be want to do, which is to report information as he received it very rapidly. Um, and it seems that he forwarded at least two reports um, to Secretary Clinton, one saying that it was a protest and a riot um, based on an anti-Muslim film that had, you know, received a lot of attention just at that time. Um, and then that was followed up by a report saying that it was a terrorist attack. So understanding that there's a certain fog of war around any terrorist attack and things were very confused at the time that this was happening, how much do you think uh, that duality of reporting impacted uh, the administration's later statements? I think that when you look back on this, and we have the benefit of hindsight and clarity, and of course we're all brilliant uh, in hindsight when you uh, walk back the cat and try to figure out exactly what was said, and, and certainly the Gowdy Committee is looking at that specifically. But I think it was quite clear to the agents on the ground in Benghazi the moment the first round was fired that this was a terrorist attack and that they were under fire 
and this was a terrorist attack team that hit the special mission compound in Benghazi. And those messages were conveyed back immediately within minutes to the U.S. Embassy Tripoli, back to State Department Operations Center and the Diplomatic Security Service Command Center, to CIA headquarters, and to the Pentagon that this was a terrorist attack based on the agent's observations on the ground. That seems critical to me because when you're talking about direct reports from an individual who is potentially engaged in that firefight on the ground, you have to trust those reports. You know, they are completely verified. It's coming through secure source from somebody on the ground. I guess where the, um, the difficulty comes is where you have other reports that potentially fudge the issue. And it's very hard to get an accurate picture from a breaking event. We have that same problem here. Uh, usually your first reports are inaccurate. Uh, it takes a while to sort through the fog of all the different intelligence and all the different kinds of reporting that could come from the scene. Uh, it takes a while for the dust to settle to figure out exactly what transpired. I think when you look back on this event in Benghazi, let's be blunt. You had a president trying to get reelected. You had a narrative in play uh, concerning the status of al-Qaeda. Uh, you had an event take place that doesn't necessarily fit the narrative at that moment in time. This is inside the beltway. This is Washington. Uh, this, these are the masters of the spin in many ways for perception purposes. But I know for a fact that to a man on the ground in Benghazi that night when Ambassador Stevens was murdered, there was no doubt in their minds that this was a terrorist attack. And in fact, I believe that one of the agents there had reported uh, seeing someone who was basically surveilling the premises earlier in the day. Bureaucracies are reactive, Marla. I've lived with that my entire career. I know that you know what I'm talking about from your days of service with the British Armed Forces, Ben, that it usually takes disaster it takes tragedy to force change. Uh, I was hired as an agent after the disasters of the U.S. Embassy uh, bombings in Beirut in 83 and 84, uh, where hundreds of people are, are, are killed. That's just what governments do. Governments typically don't get in front of these problems. Uh, disaster forces change. On a positive note, uh, since Benghazi, uh, the my old outfit has gotten better on trying to train and practice and protecting diplomats and hostile environments where buildings are literally set on fire. I was never trained to protect an individual when a building set on fire. How do you even train for that? So, uh, you know, the, the State Department has changed and reacted to that. There's been a more concerted effort to get smoke hoods, which we've talked about before in, at Stratfor, and we have videos on that, uh, which are helpful and they save lives. So, um, you know, this is what uh, governments do. Uh, they, they do do a course correction, and I have no doubt that diplomats are, are better protected around the world today in very volatile areas such as Mogadishu, where we now are going back in, and uh, you could argue whether that's the smart thing to do, but whether it be soldiers on the ground in Iraq or Afghanistan or agents providing protection for diplomats, they don't have a lot of say in the matter as to where they go. They're reacting to those policymaking decisions as to, we find it in, important enough as a nation to be in a place like Somalia. 
you guys and gals protect the diplomats while they're there. And these are high-risk environments, and these aren't places that we're going to be withdrawing from anytime soon. Even though the mission has largely ended in Afghanistan, there are still uniformed and diplomatic personnel in places like Kabul that are still in very high-risk areas. You have people with the motivation, equipment, and training to actually be a danger and a threat to them. So certainly the threat's not going away. And like you said, Fred, all we can seek to do is really continue to evolve and protect against it. When the military pulls out of whatever country they may be in, and you still have foreign diplomats, American diplomats, British diplomats, whoever that that country might be, first and foremost, it's a host government responsibility to provide protection for those diplomats. When you don't have a robust structure in places like Somalia or Libya or Afghanistan to do that, it falls upon the protection agents of, uh, in this case, the State Department to protect their personnel as best they can. The problem when you look in retrospect with Benghazi is you look at all the different high threat posts, the critical threat posts around the globe, and there are in essence too many critical threat posts and not enough agents to protect those personnel. In order to do that well, I mean, I still come back to the question of is there a degree of sophistication that's required for dealing with sources in hostile environments? And this is true of any army captain on the ground, you know, talking to locals in Afghanistan or anything else. Don't you really have to have a sophisticated understanding of which tribes are at war which, with which other tribes and which clans have it out? And you don't want to be responsible or to be taken down for a ride um, because a source had an agenda. Most, it's been my experience, Marla, that most terrorist attacks are successful for two primary reasons. The first is a failure of tactical analysis, meaning you have collected that information in retrospect. Once that embassy is lying in rubble or that diplomat is killed, you'll go back and determine that you did collect intelligence to help you make sense of that before the time. That's a failure of tactical analysis. The second point is a failure of human intelligence, meaning you lack that human intelligence, that ground truth, that tactical data to tell you that's where that IED is or that's where that terrorist attack is going to take place from or this is the militia group that's going to come over the wall tonight and try to kill you. So you have those two points, failure of tactical analysis and a failure of human intelligence collection. And most successful terrorist operations boil down to those two simplistic points but are very complex matters to make sense of on any given day. Especially when you're talking about an attack cell as well that's going to leave a trace. You have people talking to people. You might have bomb-making cells, shooters, a quartermaster, people who supply the equipment, vehicles, or weapons. That leaves a trace, either through human intelligence sources or through physical sources that you can interpret. And that... Fred's absolutely right. You know, it's a huge amount to unpack. And after the fact, it's all laid out clearly because hindsight's twenty twenty. But at the time, actually trying to build a picture from that information, that's the really critical part. I would not want to have been one of those five young agents in Benghazi that night, simply because uh, you look at the sheer scope of the mob violence, the lack of uh, additional resources to rapidly get there to try to help you, And in many cases, that's how the State Department uh, has operated for many, many years. In, In most cases, your backup is an aircraft carrier away at best. But that night in Benghazi, they did exactly what they were trained to do. Cover and evacuate your protectee, hunker down, and wait for help. They did exactly what they were supposed to do. 
So when you really go back to the situation with the, the Blumenthal intelligence, um, I guess the larger point, and it's, it's one that I don't really know how to answer at this point, but, uh, you know, if, if Secretary Clinton and others had reason to believe that the Benghazi event was a terrorist attack, and there are email threads suggesting that that was suggested and it was forwarded and reacted to in the sense of we need to get this around right away, uh, why did it take so long to acknowledge that publicly for the administration? I think inside the Beltway, when information like that comes in, Marla, that um, the National Security Council takes over, uh, they look at uh, all the different sources of information, they try to uh, massage uh, and get down to talking points that uh, they're going to push out or send their cabinet-level officials around or others such as Susan Rice to try to explain what the administration's position is. Uh, I think that if you look back in this period of time, you have to remember that you have a president running for re-election that had spoken uh, out on the fact that uh, uh, Osama bin Laden was dead, that al-Qaeda was on the run, and all of a sudden you have the president's representative to that country the United States ambassador that's been murdered by terrorists. This is the challenge when you're inside the Beltway to try to manage that message. Now, I think in hindsight, were mistakes made by the administration? I think clearly. But mistakes are always made uh, at times in these kinds of situations. You can look back on countless other examples of this uh, over time. So we'll see once the Gowdy Committee gets to the facts, uh, if they're able to, as to Uh, what actually transpired. I think in many cases what you'll have, though, is you have a bureaucracy bureaucracy that's so big and so many different moving pieces, it's hard to keep track of all the different players and personalities and people that weighed in and telephone calls where there's no written record that's going to be difficult to get down to uh, who made what decisions and when when it comes to the outcome from this. Uh, That's why I know in uh, Under Fire... Uh, my book on Benghazi, we try to just focus on the facts and let the readers be the judge as to what took place. Well, I'm sure that this is a story that's going to be with us still for quite some time. The State Department says it will be releasing uh, more of Hillary Clinton's emails every 60 days or so. Um, I'm sure that this one's not going away. And actually, Fred, your book Under Fire is being turned into a film, isn't it? Do you have any news on, on how that's progressing? Uh, well, the the book was optioned by uh, HBO Films with uh, Jerry Weintraub as the executive director and uh, David Dopkins, who did The Judge, uh, as well as Ken Nolan, who is the screenwriter. And Ken is uh, a fabulous screenwriter. He did Black Hawk Down, which mm. uh, most of the listeners have, have seen or at least heard of. Uh, so uh, that is progressing along. Uh, that's about all I can say at this point. Uh, because that's all I know. I would have to defer uh, you to HBO for further comment on that. Fred, thank you so much for your time today. And uh, yeah, we'll look forward to more on that movie as soon as it becomes available. Thank you for having me. For our next segment, we'd like to welcome a special guest, Tolga Zertschu, who's the Clinical Assistant Professor of Sports Management at the University of Texas in Austin, and we'll be discussing the geopolitical nature of sports. 
But before I get into that, um, I'd like to say that, you know, we at Stratford, we, we don't actually cover sports. It's not something that we do. We focus on geopolitics, but sports are tremendously important to a lot of our readers. And, uh, you know, especially as we've been watching this recent corruption scandal unfolding at FIFA headquarters. I know it's certainly been a very transnational issue, to say the least. And, and as you watch that, you do start to see some similarities, don't you, between governments and political bodies? Oh, absolutely. I mean, I think in um, in some ways, it's you get to see kind of all the the fun and corruption of of big time government and big time politics uh, with a lot less of the accountability. And I think the FIFA scandal has really sort of exposed that element of it. There. How do you how do you explain that exactly? I mean, you you focus a lot on sport management organizations around the world. Uh, what do you see as the similarities? Well, I mean, certainly there's almost a para global governance structure to the sports world, especially if we take FIFA or the IOC, the International Olympic Committee, as our examples, they they seem to mimic global governance, whether we look at you know, individual nation states or the UN in terms of how they're structured with different bodies and congresses and international representation and this sort of sense of democracy. Um, but when I say it kind of loses the accountability, it's that when we look closely, they really are insular bodies that don't have any great accountability to anyone but themselves. And so while it looks and sounds like we're talking about international political discourse, they really are sort of these um, ancillary, major ancillary non-governmental organizations that interact with the geopolitical global system as we know it. And they certainly give that impression of being legitimate. They have that sense of structures and institutions. And that's something that we always look at to be effective as, as a governing country or a governing body. Ultimately, it comes down to how good your institutions and how do you really embody structure. And they certainly, at face value, they have that. But it's interesting because once you peel below the surface, it's not all uh, it's not all roses. No, no, it's certainly not. And it's um, and everything sort of just leads back to the same place. You know, the IOC after you know all the kind of doping scandals and stuff of the eighties and nineties had a big push to keep themselves legitimate uh, to make it look like they were going after the dopers and the doping, and so. Since then, we've seen the creation of WADA, the World Anti-Doping Agency, and the CAS, the Court of Arbitration for Sport, which predates WADA by a good bit. Um, And they have some semblance of autonomy, but at the end of the day, they are really in this almost sort of feudalistic system where they have, um, ultimately, the IOC remains in charge of them. And so Mm -hmm. they, uh, they've sort of taken what we'd call the legal issues of sports, I guess, but have put them within an internal sort of framework that has nothing to do with other global legal systems, you know, and you can be punished by the court of arbitration for sport under Olympic guidelines or Olympic statutes, I guess, uh, that don't really have any parallel in any real nation state or whatever. So they've kind of created their own, they are judge, jury and executioner in a lot of things. And, uh, and the system just sort of like I said, it's, it's insular and it's kind of unto itself in that way. It is interesting though, because I mean, when you talk about this parallelism, I mean, if you look at FIFA as a confederation of different arms that, and they all have a voting structure, you have elections for your officials, um, you have this legal arbitration system. I mean, it is sort of about a balance of powers in a sense, isn't it? It is. It is. And um, I mean, I think the cynical view is is to to go to the most extreme that ultimately it's all kind of it's a dog and pony show meant to look 
accountable and somewhat democratic to the outside. Uh, if we're a little bit less cynical, there is, especially in this era, an increase in accountability. And even, you know, the evil FIFA has started stepping up in some small ways its efforts at transparency. Um, but I think it's it's fair to say that it's the system and the structures and the voting and all those things you mentioned are really there to legitimize them as seemingly democratic institutions. Um, and obviously the underlying thing here uh, that gets them off the hook is the idea of sports. And because in this sense, all these big bodies, whether it's at the top level FIFA and the IOC or maybe national Olympic committees in the different countries they operate in, they're sort of seen as the protectors of sport, which we don't look at as a really complicated thing. In any culture, in most any culture, in most any country, we can make something of sports. Sports are a good thing. They help us become better men. They help us become better people. They help, they bring us together only in sports, blah, 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 all those things we've kind of heard. And so as the protectors of sport, these organizations have this great sort of uh, get out of jail free card because whenever good things are happening, when they're delivering their big tournaments, when we hear some heartwarming story about an athlete doing a good thing, they can claim credit for it. But anytime something bad happens in sports, like we're seeing with FIFA right now, it's not the sport itself that's flawed. And maybe not even the body, but individuals within the body. And how dare they desecrate the wonderful thing of sports. So it's this, uh, and that's kind of, you know, when I opened and made that joke about, you know, there's no real accountability, that's kind of what, what keeps the system that way, is that at the end of the day, across the world, we tend to love sports just enough to leave these organizations ultimately not that accountable as long as they give the impression that they're still upholding the values of sports, the myths of sports. So. And it's ironic because you look at the core of most sports and you have codes of conduct. You have the idea of sportsmanship and fair play. And it seems somewhat bitter that FIFA has not played fair. <laughs> no, absolutely. Uh, and, that's, and that's sort of one of the rich ironies of all this stuff is that you see it in their official literature on the sidelines of every stadium, you know, fair play and all this stuff. But that's exactly what it comes back to, is that they have these ideals that they hold up that are essentially platitudes. Who doesn't want fair play? Who doesn't want good things for all people to come from sport, which we love so much? Uh, and that kind of sets them up to be able to inoculate themselves when things do go wrong, is they just point back and say, hey, we were trying to uphold these values in this way. These certain individuals or maybe this member body failed to do that. Let's write the ship and keep going on the original course. The actual idea of the institution is never questioned. The actual, maybe this isn't the best way to do this. That never comes up in a way that you would see in domestic or international politics. Right. But, I mean, we're in a situation right now where it almost sounds like you're saying that, you know, we as people have elevated sports to something just below a level of sacred for the most part. If you care about sport, whatever that particular sport may be, that the, the sport can be blasphemed by bad actors um, somewhere in a corrupt governing organization. But, you know, that's an offense to the fans. And so it has to be cleansed. Exactly. And no, and, and that uh, I think the religious comparison is is a very accurate one. And it's um, Bill Shankly, the famous Liverpool manager. He had a quote. He yeah. said, a lot of people say that uh, sports is like a religion, but they've got it all wrong. Sport is much more important. It's far more important. Uh, mm -hmm. Something along those lines. And uh, and we could point to different things, you know, maybe just the decline of religious institutions over the past couple hundred years, whatever it will be. That uh, yeah, sports have sort of become at the very least a civic religion. And the thought of um, of taking sports away or changing them incites 
passions in people that you would only hear when it comes to religion and maybe sometimes politics. You know, the three things maybe we shouldn't talk about at the dinner table anymore. <laughs> Probably. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> but interesting. <laughs> and it's the things that have always been with us. When you look back to the original Olympic Games, when you look back to, you know, even potentially when we were hunter-gatherers, you know, seeing who could have a competition, who could fire an arrow or throw a spear further than the other guy, it's this sort of idea of competition that's always been with us through to the great games we saw in the Colosseum of Rome to organized and formalized sports developing culturally in different parts of the world. It's almost interwoven with the history and the fabric of the development of mankind. And I think that's why everyone feels this sense of ownership because it's always been with us and it will continue to be with us for better or worse, despite the efforts of certain organizations to sully the good name of sport. Right. Well, exactly. And you touched on something there that, that I wanted to bring up because, I mean, Tolga, you've talked before about the geopolitical functions and uses of sports. And, I mean, that really does date back to, you know, ancient Romans with, you know, the Colosseum and, and the ancient Greeks with the first Olympics. And what, what are those roots? I mean, it's been used in so many different ways. Well, and I mean, if we take it to the ancient times, I mean, there's people have argued that you know, from the sporting competitions, actually, we get this idea of democracy emerges, you know, that there's a sense that, you know, a level playing field, if you will, or, you know, achievement and competition, uh, it was linked to this sense that that the individual could rise up and do well, that maybe there wasn't a natural predetermination of every man's station in life. So that there is a sort of fundamental attachment from the earliest days. And as we you know, fast forward a couple millennia um, with the industrial revolution and the rise of modern sport as we really know it. Um, that's when we see the kind of more, what to us, the more familiar geopolitical use of sport. And I think, you know, the, the, the classic ones are it's a wonderful vessel for ideology for all the reasons we just kind of mm-hmm. talked about is that you have this great sort of malleable thing and you can make it mean something. You know, if the U.S. and the Soviets were, you know, we thought ourselves to be so radically different during the Cold War. Yet in both countries, we found a way to channel all that through sport. And so it shows you that if two different regimes, if you will, uh, could find value in the same abstract idea, it shows that sport has a sort of malleability or it's this vessel where you can kind of get what you want out of it. You know? And so whether it's in terms of domestically you know, kind of raising fervor, you know, in the 1940s for American men, it was the call to physical fitness, you, know, you build your body to protect your country, you know, this whole, we've seen all these sort of links. And then in the more sort of concrete political arena, the Olympic boycotts, obviously, the famous ones in mm-hmm. 1980 when the U.S. boycotts the Soviet games. And then in 1984, there's the retaliation. The Soviets don't come to L.A. and I think they keep 14 of their closest friends at home with them. But even as far back as I think uh, the 36 Berlin games, the Irish boycotted um, basically we're the only country to boycott explicitly because of Hitler or of the of the Nazi regime's treatment of the Jews and so we mm-hmm. have this sort of long-standing tradition of boycotts and this sort of political use and the sort of symbolic imagery and I think you know not to beat a dead horse but it, it keeps coming back to this idea that sport in the abstract can be shaped to sort of symbolize or um, just sort of capture what those in power want it to want it to be, want it to have. Yeah. It's interesting because we always talk about war being an extension of diplomacy by other means, but actually you, you can kind of say the same about sport because you know, there are certainly things that can be resolved on the, the football pitch as much as they can be on the battlefield, though hopefully with less, you know, less, less, <laughs> less bloodshed. Yeah. <laughs> well, and, that, and that's the idea, and that's, and that's one of those things that we do 
kind of romanticize. You know, on the one hand, you do have, you know, Nixon's ping pong diplomacy. And by all accounts, you know, table tennis did seem to serve some function in opening up and unfreezing U.S.-China relations. Um, but on the other hand, you know, we quickly spiral into this rhetoric, you know, and I think especially um, from geopolitics as it's done at Stratford, the idea that, you know, what's happening on the game has a bigger macro impact. Uh, that's a harder thing to really argue, but the symbolism mm -hmm. is certainly there. And, you know, if we look at World Cup games between, I don't know, the U.S. and Iran in 1998, two mm -hmm. kind of lousy teams, but the politics of it is actually, you know, to look at it the other way, rather than the sport impacting the politics, the politics made the sport much more meaningful. You had two teams that really had no chance of qualifying or advancing out of their group. All of a sudden, we were reminded of U.S.-Iranian relations and all the political meaning of all this and what is it all, you know, what will the result on the field mean for us? And probably not much, actually, but it's interesting how we hear about it and we think about it and we think it means something. You know, tying in with the ideology, and you said national awareness, I think it's you know, the Olympics are that time every four years where even people who wouldn't normally consider themselves rah-rah patriots, all of a sudden, you know, we want our guy to crush the other guy. And of course, I'm cheering for Team USA. I may have never watched swimming or curling before in my life, but these are my people and we're going to go do it. And, and I'm going to feel good if it happens, you know. So it is a, it's an interesting sort of thing we have there. You know, I would love to see a curling victory myself for the U.S. That would be fantastic. Well, coming from the United Kingdom, I think the Scots have got a definite lead there. Uh, they tend to dominate that sport for obvious reasons. So um, since we are talking about FIFA, um, I'd really love to know what you see is happening next, whether um, any of those questionable bids in Qatar, for example, for the World Cup might be revisited. Because I certainly, if I were a football player, would not want to play for the World Cup in Qatar myself. Yeah, it'll, it'll be interesting um, because obviously, you know, and this is where we do maybe kind of see a more geopolitics within the sporting world that the FIFAs of the world do want to be careful to not set precedents. And I think of the two coming up, and obviously by now we've heard sort of the, the suspicious way in which those bids were acquired and even the sort of odd out of character, um, the dual announcement where previously only you know, the World Cup eight years away would be announced this time in 2010, I believe. They announced both Russia 2018 and Qatar 2022 simultaneously. So from the get-go, it's been sort of shrouded with a bit of this. Um, I would be very shocked if Russia loses the game or lo loses the cup, partly because we're pretty – we're getting close to it and partly because of the power of Putin and the influence of Putin. And he obviously – of the of the geopolitical leadership that values the – the impact of sport, the potential of sport, the pomp and circumstance, he obviously is, you know, maybe candidate number one. And I think he showed his colors right away when the day the, the U.S., um, the indictments came out, he jumped right up to say, hey, this is just the U.S. overstepping their bounds once again. This has nothing to do with any real issues. This is just the U.S. trying to play the world's watchdog. And again, we talk about legitimacy, and we saw this with Sochi. You know, Russia made a big show of saying, actually, we can do this. And again, Western media made a big show of saying, well, actually, a lot of the things you built are falling down around you. And But, you know, for Russia, it is it, partly it's pride, but it's also it's it's showing that they, they're on the top table. They can still pull off this sort of event and, in the eyes of the world, be hosts to this prestigious event. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. And I think you're spot on with Sochi, and I think the World Cup, was sort of meant to bookend that and really reassert themselves as global players on on that cultural cosmopolitan scale. Because, yeah, because only a big-time legitimate country could do such a thing. Mm. Um, but in the case of Qatar, I mean, it's more the time we have between now and that makes it more interesting. And the only, um, previous to this, the only World Cup that was 
changed its location. The only precedent for changing a World Cup location was in 1986. And I think about three and a half years before before those games, so in, let's say, late 1982, Colombia, who were slated to host, actually just realized they were not going to be ready to pull it off. And so they said they kind of they relinquished their rights to the games, and it was taken back to Mexico, who had hosted only 16 years earlier. Right. So there is precedent in a country that had secured the bid losing the rights, but it was done, you know, obviously on very different terms. Uh, the the cynic in me says that Qatar will probably see this through, that a lot more, that even the stuff we've seen in the past couple of months or the past month or so will not be enough to destabilize that situation. Of course, if, you know, if this judicial process uncovers murkier and murkier stuff, then then maybe there'll be enough to kind of force the change. But I think from those in the soccer world, the perspective is this sort of, well, the more things change, the more they stay the same, is that they don't really expect Blatter's successor to be a whole lot different. And I think they all kind of read his game, his, his game plan of standing for election and then stepping down five days later as sort of a, a concession to stacking the deck. And whenever this next election does happen, the leadership will probably not be radically changed, and they're going to want to push forward with Qatar because obviously there's the big money there, uh, and developing the game in that side of the world only benefits FIFA's coffers in the long run. And ultimately, memories are short, and people will still attend for the love of the game. People will always want to support their team, see their favorite players, and enjoy the spectacle of the event. So is this just a flash in the pan, I guess? In in some ways, it, it might be. I mean, it certainly brought more global attention to... The issues surrounding, um, you know, the Qatar situation and their human rights abuses or potential human rights abuses. You know that, on the one hand, there's projections that 4,000 some odd migrant workers will die preparing the World Cup. To hear uh, the Qatari government talk about it, there have been zero deaths so far, and there will be zero deaths. So clearly, we get into some uh, some contentious area here. But I think you're ultimately right, and that's the power of of the game. And whether that's because we've been ideologically programmed to think that this is so important or because if it speaks, like you said, to maybe some baser human instinct for play and for competition is that it's very hard for us to detach our love of the game as fans from these bigger issues, you know, and at the end of the day, we want to see these guys compete. We want to see these games take place. Mm. And that's always going to be the challenge for those who really want to change the system. Well, Tolga, it's been really interesting discussing all of this with you, and, and I'm sure that we will um, be talking about it much more in the future. But thank you very much for making time to come out here and be with us. Thank you for having me. This was fun. Before we leave you today, we'd like to invite Stratfor subscribers to send us their questions or comments. We'll be sharing some of that feedback with listeners on future podcasts and getting analysts to respond to some of the questions we're frequently asked. So if you have feedback you'd like to share with this audience, drop us a line at www.stratfor.com slash podcasts slash feedback. Be sure to provide your full name and give us an idea of how to pronounce it, as well as the city and country you're writing from. Once again, that web address is strap4.com slash podcast slash feedback. We look forward to hearing from you. Let's keep the conversation going. And that's our show for today. Thanks for listening. And as always, look us up on iTunes for more podcasts. And for more in-depth analyses and forecasts on global issues, please visit strap4.com. Mm-hmm.